Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and as always, I am joined by Andrew Rushby and Hugh Osborne. In this episode of Exocast, we will cover a few of the month's most interesting papers, as deemed by ourselves, and we've each focused on a single interesting development that has caught our eye. So who wants to go first? Andrew has volunteered gallantly. (laughs) Well, only because I I found this very interesting paper that I'm quite excited uh, to discuss and maybe get your your views on. So this is a paper entitled Assessing Planetary Complexity and Potential Agnostic Biosignatures Using Epsilon Machines. It was published in Nature Astronomy. I I understand like three of those words. Yeah, which is exactly (laughs) why it caught my attention. (laughs) Um, Published in Nature Astronomy this month by uh, Stuart Bartlett and, and others. So um, as JWST completes its uh, commissioning phase over the next few months and maybe some of the early release science projects get underway, I think we'll eventually start to develop a better idea as to, you know, the actual practical capabilities of the instrument to to look for and characterize small planets out there in the galaxy. Um, And we're we're optimistic, but, you know, we have discussed the potential yield or how much useful information we'll get we'll get from these uh these small worlds uh, on on the show before and most recently now our last episode with mark mccoffrian so regular listeners will probably know that we try and err on the side of caution when it comes to thinking about how much information we might be able to get from small terrestrial planets um they might be out of reach, but maybe super Earths or, or mini Neptunes. Uh, and if you're wondering about the definition or the, the distinction between those two type of objects, then check it out previous episode in which we uh, ask um, how big can an exoplanet be? And we touch on a little bit of that. But we might be able to image those kind of larger, slightly larger than the terrestrial planet worlds um, with JWST to get hopefully a, a wealth of interesting data. So if they are indeed possible, they probably get some atmospheric spectroscopy, information from the atmosphere in which we're seeing um, which gases are absorbing which, uh, you know, starlight in, in, in different p- parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. And then from that, we can determine what gases are hopefully present in the atmosphere of that planet, perhaps giving us some idea um, as to if there's any you know, greenhouse gases or if we can use that information to compute a planetary climate or even look for biosignatures, uh, which often take the form of, of gases, maybe something like oxygen or methane or combination of the two. However, the, you know, I, I found this, this novel complementary approach, I've called it here, um, to small planet uh, characterization um, in, in the form of, of this paper uh, by Caltech and LC scientist Stuart Bartlett. Um, and this study based on compl- uh, concepts which are taken from information theory and complexity science over in, in statistics introduces another means by which to potentially understand and maybe characterize these small worlds. So using data from NOAA's Deep Space Climate Observatory satellite, the authors attempted to determine the measure of quote-unquote complexity of the Earth and note how this changes um, as the planet's surfaces and oceans are simplified and reduced in a statistical sense um, when we're measuring, when we're getting this information in multi-wavelength time series reflectance data as they are. So the initial premise for the paper is that the complexity of a world that has a biosphere or a living world um, increases over time and that living systems make use of information to direct the operation of complex chemical and physical processes. So this isn't that new. The idea that more complex and perhaps 
the further from equilibrium a molecular reaction network is, the more likely it, it is that potentially it evolved from a biotic process. And there are um, researchers such as Sarah Walker, who's at Arizona State, um, and others who have considered whether looking for those kind of chemical networks on a planetary scale could be a, um, a biosignature that we could detect remotely. Uh, and you should check out some of Sarah Walker's papers if you want a little bit more information as to how that could be done. So I don't want to get into too much detail regarding the maths because I don't understand it all, frankly. <laughs> um, it's, it was a well-written paper and there was a lot of supplementary information I'd recommend getting, getting into it. It's very interesting stuff. And perhaps folks who come from machine learning and computer science might actually be a better place to understand this. Um, but the way that they define or, 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 or compute complexity here is uh, using a method called epsilon machine reconstruction. So in this context, these are algorithms that take as input the time series that's being analyzed. So here we've got the multi-wavelength time series reflectance data from the Earth, from the NOAA satellite, or potentially maybe another planet. Um, and then that as uh, output would then produce a minimal optimized model of that time series data that, that is capable of reproducing it uh, in a statistically equivalent way. How many different ways can you make this observation, uh, essentially? Then they wanted to combine that measure uh, with um, entropy. Now, a lot of people who are listening to this might be physicists and think of entropy in the thermodynamic sense, which isn't completely incorrect here, but they're thinking more about informational entropy here, which is the kind of uncertainty or randomness, which isn't that different from the thermodynamic definition, I guess, um, the, the kind of uncertainty randomness of that information. So the premise here is that, the, that rare events are more uncertain and more surprising, and therefore require more information to represent them than more common events. Therefore, the amount of information garnered from an event is inversely proportional to the probability of that event occurring. So the more rare something is, the more information it takes to understand that event, and also the more information is bound up uh, in that event. Now, okay, this is all a bit abstract, so let's try to put this in context. So what, what might planetary complexity look like? How might they define this in terms of the planetary uh, complexity and looking for and understanding and characterizing small planets? So they also suggest we might find a wide range of complexity levels for different planetary bodies, which I, I guess is to be expected. And they use the solar system as an example, uh, again, which makes sense. We have a lot of information to go on there. So they note, for example, that the moon is a very low complexity body, very little changes over time. Remember here, we're thinking if we have multi-wavelength time series data. So in terms of that context, the moon is very, has a very low complexity surface. Not a lot changes, there's no atmosphere. Four billion years of pretty much looking just the same. Um, however, Jupiter or, or the sun, which uh, we assume to be uh, not, uh, not um, habitable environments, are still relatively complex, at least outwardly, because we can see you know, different periodic repeating uh, structures in their atmospheres, fluctuations in color, stochastic kind of random dissipative features and structures in their atmospheres. For example, the Great Red Spot, that's a, a rather surprising and information-rich feature in the context of this. So I guess a bit of a spoiler, uh, the Earth was indeed found to be the most complex planetary body in the solar system. Um, and they, the authors suggest that this is because, you know, we have this dynamic, rapidly rotating atmosphere. You know, we've got clouds, we've got storms, we've got planetary waves, um, as also a, a, a rapidly changing surface shaped and mediated by the actions of its biosphere in many ways. I mean, think about seasonal vegetation growth, rising levels of PCO2, thanks to us, you know, the ozone hole, again, thanks to us. Um, that's also intrinsically linked to its oceans and interior. So it's because of this interconnected nature of the Earth system that we get this increase in planetary complexity there. 
So now the next step is that to assume that the planets that exhibit the greatest degree of complexity in this in the sense will also have the highest likelihood of developing their own biospheres. And this is the this is the big step, uh, I think. Um, so on this basis, the authors produce a ranking uh, based on the combination of entropy and complexity that I've discussed here, um, and then demonstrate that there's a number of different synthetic Earth-like features that can be grouped from most simple to most complex. And those are cloudless monosurface, uh, cloudless multisurface, cloudy monosurface, and cloudy multisurface. So a cloudy multisurface feature is the most complex, and we have a lot of those, I guess, uh, on the Earth, and, it, and it's rapidly changing. They then suggest that these might be groupings that future planets can be classified if we have sufficient resolution. And they, they argue fairly well, I think, that you don't actually need very much. You can simplify this or reduce this down um, if you have high resolution time series data. And now, not, as someone who's not an observer, I'm not sure about that side of things. This paper was not written by observers, I don't think, and that was quite clear. Um, and they didn't go into much detail about how this would actually be applied to, for example, James Webb or Next Generation stuff. But I, I nevertheless thought, thought it was an interesting approach that um, could certainly be used as a complementary uh, approach to our uh, ongoing characterization through the traditional methods, shall we say. So in summary, uh, and despite the co qualitatively complex atmosphere of, of Jupiter and the Sun, the authors you know, find that Earth does have that that highest complexity and entropy, uh, as I said, likely due to that interconnected nature. But they don't rule out that um, uh, sterile exoplanets might exhibit similar or higher complexities to the Earth. Um, we don't know uh, about the, the true diversity of, of exoplanet atmospheres and exoplanet surfaces and what might be changing over the, the timescale that's relevant here. So they do admit that there's a possibility that this complexity could be mimicked by a sterile environment, I guess. And then for me personally, I, I wonder how these those four classes that were mentioned might be uh, might be uh, applied to, for example, tidally locked planets that might not um, have the same formation of clouds. They might form in different ways and be moved around the planet very differently. Um, so I wonder how that would then be translated into this kind of complexity space. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a, a novel approach um, and it may be especially useful for these small, potentially ro ro rocky exoplanets where we might have limited data um, that can hopefully maybe constrain our, our observations uh, in future and assist with our searches for biosignatures if we can prioritize these worlds. There is also the possibility of kind of getting some of this probabilistic stuff into some of the, the kind of Bayesian methods that we were looking at for, for biosignature detections back in the, 28, in the 2018 workshop that I attended. Because so I think that might fit in there quite well. So comp using that complementary approach might be the way, the way forward. But I don't know. What did you, what did you think, team? Yeah, that sounded really fascinating. The thing that kept just flashing in my mind is why didn't they apply this to Titan? Right. Again, uh, uh, that was something I thought, especially as they were using Cassini stuff from Jupiter um, as well. It's like, you know, if you're in the outer solar system anyway. <laughs> we have almost an entire cycle of rain yeah. and, you know, evaporation, cloud formation and lake formation, changes in topography and atmospheric conditions on Titan that this would be really, really interesting to see. That's that's something that before applying it to a distant planet, that's what I would go for. And then the next thing, if I'm honest, I would go for is looking at Betelgeuse. So Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, uh, big bright red star in the constellation of Orion, recently, uh, 2020, I think it was, went through a period where it changed in its brightness significantly and this was attributed to a big dark spot forming in its outer atmosphere 
This is a star that is changing on timescales that we were able to measure them months. There's a huge number of complex systems that could have been applied to this to really explore that categorization a little bit more and perhaps, you know, give more credence to it being this definitive boundary kind of groupings that they've put forward. Yeah, I mean, the the, Europa, the Titan environment will arguably that be that cloudy multi-surface, right? Um, mm-hmm. As you say, exactly. there's clouds, there's, there's lakes, there's uh, all sorts of interesting surface features. And they change shape and, and size over mm-hmm. the course of its, its cycle. So it's seasons. It, it, it is seasonal as well. But it is also tidally locked. Which would then perhaps answer my question as whether this might apply to tidally locked worlds. So how does this apply to a tropical planet where we have that kind of different circulation planet, circulation structure in the atmosphere? I think it definitely sounds fascinating and you presented it really beautifully, Andrew. Thank Thank you you. for that. Um, But I have questions. Yeah, as did I. But can I just, just, just to, so trying to think about the technique in my head, it's basically you take an image of a planet in multiple wavelengths and the wigglier the time series, the more the more habitable your planet. Uh, because, you know, I guess the, yeah. You know. Jumping through a few phases, through a few <laughs> stages. Yes, that's the argument. That the more the more wiggly that time so, series, you know, the Earth is is the wiggliest exactly, and yeah. the Moon is like a flat line yeah. in terms of like change over time for these things. Yeah, I, I mean it's interesting, but I, I I just feel like it's one of these things where we can't test it because we just have one wiggly planet in our solar system. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that there are, you know, crazy geological, you know, stuff happening on, on other terrestrial planets, which are not at all biotic, but, you know, different kinds of volcanoes, different kinds of clouds, all these things that could happen. Um, you know, lava surfaces and, and oceans and uh, terrestrial surfaces. Who knows? I, d- I, just, I just don't think we have enough information to say if it's useful. That's a very interesting point, though, Hugh, because isn't this, um, in a way providing like kind of a proxy for information. What we're saying here is that we don't have sufficient information. The information that the the surface environment or the atmosphere gives us is this many bits, right, of information. Now, what we can infer from that um, is pretty limited, but if that information is changing over time um, at a rate that um, puts it somewhere in this distribution between the complexity and the entropy, then perhaps from that we limited data we could extract or we could at least try and put it into one of these very simple four categories because i mean even cloudy monosurface doesn't tell you much or cloudy multi-surface yeah. doesn't tell you much yeah i guess yeah that could be useful but it is a measure of that information as you say we don't have the information this is a measure of that information which shows us we don't have enough <laughs> right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is the best we can do maybe with that limited information um maybe i'm not representing it as well as the authors might um, but, you know, it's a Nature Astro paper. It's like four pages, very punchy, huge supplementary information at the bottom if you want to get into the maths. Um, and I definitely <laughs> remember che- recommend checking out some cool figures too. I've also got a Nature Astronomy paper we could talk about. That. Excellent. So the paper I found is on TRAPPIST-1. Everyone loves TRAPPIST-1. Apparently not an exocast. Oh, we don't like it. I'm sorry, not in an exocup, I should say. <laughs> an exocast, oh, an exocup, we love it, yeah. but not in the exocup so much. That's true. So... The TRAPPIST-1 system is seven small planets, so seven terrestrial planets, um, orbiting a tiny little M-dwarf um, not too far from, from the sun. Um, and they, they are all kind of terrestrial, so rocky planets with masses from about 0.3 to 1.4 Earth masses and radii around that of the Earth. Um, so one of the key things to note about the TRAPPIST-1 system is that all seven of the planets are in what's called a mean motion resonance. So 
Um, uh, if you remember, if you did a GCSE physics or, you know, the equivalent, then you remember resonances is where effectively the, the time scale of one system is, is at some sort of uh, integer period ratio with the time scale of another system. So, you know, if you think about um, pendular or you think about um, spinning, I can't remember what, what we even did in physics back in school, but certainly resonances are covered. And, and these planetary systems, these are real, you know, key you know, they're, they're real great demonstrations of resonances. So if you think about the Galilean moons around Jupiter, for every orbit of Ganymede, Europa orbits exactly twice and Io orbits exactly four times. Um, and this resonance system, these are basically uh, stuck in this kind of very stable system because any kind of push and pull out of this period ratio uh, gets brought back into line because of the gravitational influ influence of, of each of the the three moons in that case, but but also in the case of Trappist One, all seven planets are in this chain of resonances. Um, so the the chain goes. So for every two orbits of H, the outer planet, number seven, you get three orbits of G. <laughs> wait, four orbits of F, six orbits of E, nine orbits of D. 15 orbits of C and 24 orbits of B. I was worried I was going to get the alphabet <laughs> wrong. I would definitely, you know, be arrested in the US for drunk driving or whatever. <laughs> drunk podcasting. Yeah, that's a really tough sobriety test that yeah. I could certainly not pass over. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, another thing to note is um, about just about how planets form. So we talked a little bit about this in, in the, this month's other uh, episode. But basically planets grow from, from dust into kind of planetesimals, so small moonlets, and these, you know, collide into planets. And um, what happened in, in the solar system is that these the most of the formation actually happened after the gas disks, so the kind of gas surrounding the sun, dissipated, and they formed from kind of quite energetic collisions. But what often happens, and one thing we think that happens within... Um, Within the, or in order to form these very resonant kind of close chains of planets, is that this ha probably happens within the gas disk, and that gas disk effectively damps the planets, makes sure that they um, can stay in these resonances, and makes sure that there's not so much um, material being thrown around. But what happens as well, often when the gas um, dissipates, is that you might have planetesimals um, where pla you know formation failed, so you might end up with uh, asteroid belts like you know the the, the asteroid belt in our solar system is due to Jupiter's influence disrupting planet formation, or um, you know things like the Kuiper belt, which is due to gas giants disrupting planetesimal stopping formation further out in the solar system. So you end up with these belts of you know um, not you know failed planets basically. Um, and so what what can happen is that these belts of of asteroids can be flown flung around the system, so made dynamically unstable and collide with some of the planets interior or exterior to these belts. And this kind of, we, we see this in the solar system through what's called the late heavy bombardment. So um, that was when material was, was thrown around and we measured it on the moon. And there's, there's some question as to whether that was uh, actually the case, whether there was a big late heavy bombardment. But if you look at the, um, the iron and the siderophile, so like platinoid group metals that we find on the surface of the earth, it tells us that there must have been um, you know, a relatively minor but but still present bombardment of material from the asteroid belt and from the Kuiper belt after the formation of planets in our solar system. So what this paper did by Sean Raymond, looking at Trappist-1, was basically to ask the question, well, how much material can we fling around the Trappist-1 system before 
we break that resonance chain. So even though the resonance chain is very stable, um, if you were to fling Mars into TRAPPIST 1H or something, then it would it would be a big enough hit that it would break from the resonance and end up on a period which was you know not quite an integer ratio with the, the planet interior and exterior to it. And so you would see this in the in the data, you would see the period wouldn't quite match. And we, we know that for TRAPPIST, all of these periods are like almost perfectly, you know, ratios with, with their companions. So how much mass can you fling around before you break those um, those resonances? So what they did was was they did basically did some simulations of the TRAPPIST-1 system and threw some planets or planetesimals into the, into the planets to see how much they could sustain before the resonance was broken. So for the outermost planets, they could they could take like a, a full moon mass object in the face and still not like leave you know their resonances. But in the in the terms of the inner planets, um, even something as small as 0 0.03 moon masses. So that's about the size of the asteroid Pallas. You know, not even I think it's the third biggest asteroid in the asteroid belt. Even that would be able to destabilize Trappist One B. So we know that Trappist One B didn't didn't have you know even something as big as Pallas hit it. In the, after formation. Another thing that, that Sean Raymond and this team did was they, you know, what if, if you split up the masses into clouds of planetesimals that were being flung around? And in this case, you could, you know, you could get a bit more mass um, kind of colliding with the planets and maintain the resonances, but still only something like uh, five moon masses was the maximum. So this is, this is quite small in terms of planets. I mean, uh, one thing to note is that um, Earth famously took a Mars-sized planetoid directly head-on in the after its formation, which formed the Moon. So, um, so, so we know that Trappist One must have formed differently from the solar system planets because uh, any kind of Mars-sized planet collision in Trappist One would have broken this chain of of resonances. And we also now know that this late heavy bombardment that we see in the solar system, if it happened in the TRAPPIST-1 system, it must have been much smaller. So in the solar system, it's about 0.25 to 0.5 moon masses that were flung around after the moon forming impact. But something like that would have destabilized most of TRAPPIST-1's planets, with the exception of, of the two outer planets. So this really suggests that TRAPPIST-1's seven planets must have all kind of stuck together uh, and formed while still encased in a blanket of protoplanetary gas, which limited any of these dynamic instabilities and late-stage collisions. And it also suggests that, that the seven planets around TRAPPIST-1 all formed in kind of record time. So the, the, um, the Earth and the terrestrial planets in the solar system are thought to have formed in you know, 50 million years, maybe 100 million maximum, whereas it looks like TRAPPIST-1 must have formed in under a million years, so you know, maybe 50 times quicker than for for the solar system planet, uh, terrestrial planets. And so this kind of fits with our formation theory of how these resonant chains form. Um, but it's, it adds some direct evidence to that, that kind of idea. And another final point is, is about the um, delivery of water in TRAPPIST-1. So there's been some speculation about TRAPPIST-1's planets being water-rich. Although, you know, now we have better masses, it suggests that all seven of the planets follow, follow the same density trend of being almost pure rock bodies, if not perfectly um, rocky kind of density. Um, but this, and this, this analysis um, basically says that you couldn't fling in cometary, uh, a lot of cometary material from the outer solar system uh, and kind of throw water onto the inner rocky or TRAPPIST-1 planets. So um, if there was any transfer of water happening in the TRAPPIST-1 system, then you'd be limited to uh, kind of a couple of ocean masses of Earth or 
maybe even less for some of the inner planets. So there is still room there to maybe form the Trappist-1 planets from water-rich rocky material, but there's not much room now to, to form large oceans after the Trappist-1 planets are formed, because this, this study basically, um, basically says that that would have destabilized the seven kind of that perfect resonance system that we have. So this clockwork precision of the seven Trappist planets has been really useful, not just for, uh, for getting the masses, because we, we have the, the masses of these planets because of their resonances, because we were able to measure the transit timing, so the change in gravitational pull due to the resonances they have. But now it's useful as well for putting uh, real limits on the formation and um, the, even the composition of these planets. So I feel like this, this is a really cool study and really kind of obvious thing to do, but... Um, but, but it, you know, the, Sean Raymond and his team were the first first people to do it. And it's, you know, really interesting, I think. To be fair, when I think about water being flung about, as you, as you put it, which I, I quite like, I do think of Sean Raymond and his papers, right? He's, he's been a, a leading advocate or a leading researcher in this, in this kind of area, looking at volatile delivery. And that was going to be my question, right, was about in terms of habitability, which is, you know, my, my thang, uh, getting some water onto those planets is going to be is going to be pretty important. And yeah, if there's a if there's a, a lack or dearth, would that also then prevent the formation of water rich asteroids uh, at any distance from Trappist one, right? If all of these planets formed with in this compact, uh, you know, gassy disk, would there have been any material left over? Would they have just cleaned up their neighborhood, so to speak, so effectively yeah. that there wasn't much left to fling I around? I think they must have done. Mm. You know, if, if there was even a moon mass left, it would probably be, you know, there's not much room to put rings in the system because all the planets are very close together. So unless there's uh, an asteroid belt beyond planet H, which we don't know about yet, I imagine there's no equivalent of the asteroid belt between planets in our solar system in the Trappist yeah. system, yeah. And what about the possibility, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if this was mentioned there, what about the possibility of something being ejected, uh, you know, early on, uh, a large, a large, you know, object? Would that have been, would, would we see that in the resonances now? I guess not, right? No, so, I mean, I guess what tends to happen is that um, we think what happens after resonances form and then the gas disk goes away, quite often these resonances are too close, you know, the planets come too close to each other. And then what happens then is that, you know, there's no more gas protecting the system, kind of damping things down. Uh, so this resonance chain basically breaks itself and flings one of the planets out. And that's what we think happened in the outer solar system. So that it looks like there used to be five gas giants and they were in a perfect resonance chain like we see with Trappist. And then one of the ice giants, the least massive one, effectively... Um, destabilized and was flung out of the system by Saturn and Jupiter. And then that meant that the resonance chain that existed was broken. And so we don't see any resonance uh, in the outer solar system now. So I think that would be the same in the Trappist system. If there was any uh, planet ejected, it would be during the destabilization of the resonance chain, uh, which we don't see because they're, they're still in perfect resonance. Um, so I think that says that probably, unless it happens super early, that didn't happen in Trappist. You get so much information from this. Um, it's, it's a really cool study. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and if you are interested in the kind of formation and, and the idea of how much mass is required to make something like the Trappist-1 system, you can go back to Exocast 35B, where we talked with Thomas Howarth, who has done studies oh, yeah. on the environmental impact of, of where Trappist formed and whether external influences could, could impact the sizes of the planets that are formed there. I'm going to take us on a completely different trajectory now, but stay within this kind of small star, small-ish planet kind of realm, because the paper that I found this month was 
not a nice short paper, uh, not a nice simple summarised paper, although there were some <laughs> fantastically beautiful paragraphs in this paper that, that really were very, very clearly laid out. I think we should celebrate that. Sorry to inter- interject, Hannah. We should celebrate that more often, right? When you read a paper and you think, wow, that's that's beautiful, that's eloquent, that's wonderfully written. I think we should celebrate that more. Yeah. I made a, I made a specific note in one section. I was like, this is nice. nice. Um, but So this month I've gone with something now for something completely different. Um, simulating the space weather in the AU mix system, the stellar winds and extreme coronal mass ejections. And this is a paper that was led by uh, Alvarado Gomez from Potsdam. And um, this is a very theoretical paper and it contained a lot of physics that I had to go back and research myself. Um, <laughs> it involved a lot of Wikipedia reading and then finding some as many popular science articles as I could to explain to me what that meant. Um, but I, I really wanted to highlight here because it really does show a different axis that we need to think about when it comes to discussing exoplanets. And I don't think we cover it too much on this show. And that involves what happens to these close-in exoplanets. And almost all of the exoplanets we talk about on this show are close-in exoplanets. And um, what happens to them when we consider space weather? And space weather is the material that is ejected from the star essentially there is a continuous stream of particles that come from the sun that is its space weather and we see the evidence of space weather on the earth through the reconnection events which produce the aurora and that is plasma quite literally from the sun entering the earth's atmosphere uh, and lighting it up emitting light due to the energy so space weather is kind of constant and we see it 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 exists around all stars, but we never really discuss this because it concerns the biggest question you get, the biggest gotcha that you can get in anything. What about magnetic fields? <laughs> and the reason we don't discuss it is because it's really damn difficult. <laughs> like really difficult. Um, it becomes very complicated. So I'm going to kind of brush over all of them and I'm going to try and give you some of the really key points for this because I think it's really interesting, especially for the AUMIC system. So AUMIC is a, a very bright star it is very famous in ExoCup, so if you want to learn more about it, you can find ExoCup cards on AUMIC. It has two planets, B and C, and they are on 8 and 18 day orbits, respectively. But it's a, it's a fairly bright star, and it's still quite young, so it's still got a disk of dust around it, um, meaning that the planets are also very, very young as well. Um, and the AUMIC planets are both what we would call mini-Neptunes, but due to their young age, this is still really kind of a big question of whether they will remain mini-Neptunes or lose some of their atmosphere over time and transition across this radius valley that we talked about in Exocast 57b, so the earlier episode this month, uh, and become these super-Earth. So the big question here is, how does the star influence the atmosphere of these planets? And in this paper, the authors are simulating the solar wind, so the constant stream of particles from the star, and evaluating the baseline environments that these planets will sit in. So if you're under this constant stream of particles from the star, the solar wind, what kind of environment does that give your planets? And then they go further to simulate the impact of a coronal mass ejection. This is an explosive ejection of fast-moving clumps of plasma from the star's surface that they then simulate the impact this would have on the planets and their orbits. So, in short, the conclusions from this is that the AUMIC 
planets, both B and C, will likely be under a constant flux of high-energy particles from the solar wind. And additional CME events, these coronal mass ejection events, would cause insane amounts of damage to these planets. I'm going to not go through the details necessarily of the simulations, but I do think it's necessary to summarise these two different categories of events, the solar wind and the CMEs, and try and put it into a little bit of context in terms of the sun and the earth uh, and the environment that we sit under here. So first, uh, a look at the solar wind, or the stellar wind in this case, the AUMIC wind, um, <laughs> if we want to do that. Um, in the first set of simulations, they actually set up three different magnetic field configurations. So the magnetic field of the star itself is important here, because that is what dictates the solar wind. I'm going to keep calling it solar wind. I'm sorry, that's a default for me. It's okay. And the configurations that they, they use are all relatively strong in general. The magnetic field of the star is, is based on different imaging that's been done of the star. And the imaging can tell you how strong the magnetic field of that star is. And while they, they appear relatively strong, they're kind of decent in terms of relative to our sun. So the magnitude of these stellar the stellar magnetic field is relatively similar with some much larger hotspots, so much stronger points of magnetic activity compared to our sun. But these, uh, on average, if you average that out over the whole star, it's, a, it's relatively similar to our sun. Um, and they, they look at multiple different orientations. So what actually seems to matter the most is not the strength of your magnetic field, but how it's oriented relative to the rotation of your star. So if the magnetic field is aligned with the rotation axis of your star, then the equatorially orbiting planets in this case, because the AUMIC planets orbit relatively around the equator of the star's rotational axis, would remain in a kind of stable condition of that star's magnetic field. It wouldn't be changing much because the, the quieter part of that magnetic field, the planets would be entirely encompassed within that throughout their orbital period around the star. If, however, you offset the magnetic field, the magnetic axis of the star to its rotational axis, and in this paper they use a 20 degrees offset based on some observations of AUMIC itself, then the planet's orbit could actually take it inside and outside of stable regions of that stellar wind, and that would have a much larger impact on the planetary atmospheres. So the results from these simulations that they run indicate that the AUMIC planets experience the stellar wind pressures that are about between two and four times that what we experience here on the Earth. So the stellar wind that they're getting on these planets is much, much stronger than what we're, we experience here on the Earth. And that both of those planets would experience really high atmospheric mass loss rates because of this. But perhaps more interestingly is that in almost all of the cases, the planets spend their orbit distinctly inside the star's magnetic field. They are in closed field lines. This means that they are entirely coupled to the star and its magnetic field. So if there are any changes in the magnetic field of the star, it will induce magnetic changes in the planetary atmosphere. And we can see a direct correlation, we can see a direct example of this in our solar system with the moons of Jupiter. The moons of Jupiter sit inside Jupiter's closed magnetic field lines. This means that the magnetic field of the planet, Jupiter, entirely encompasses the orbit of those, those moons. 
And we can actually see the imprints of this in the aurora of Jupiter. So at the poles of Jupiter, you can see the aurora and you can actually trace the moon's positions in their orbit based on that auroral footprint. No and Io itself, yeah, it's really amazing. Awesome. It's really beautiful yeah. if you haven't seen it. But Io, which is the closest moon into Jupiter, sits very much within the kind of uh, plasma sheaf of Jupiter's magnetic field, actually spews out material because of its volcanic activity that imprints directly onto the aurora, travels along the magnetic field lines, is picked up by the magnetic field lines of Jupiter and is deposited in the magnetic pole of Jupiter. And you can see that in the aurora. And these AU MIC planets are sitting in a very similar situation around their star. They're well within the closed magnetic field of the star so they are directly influenced by any changes in that star's magnetic field. So they are constantly, or, or near constantly, depending on the actual orientation, again, these, the orientation of the magnetic field rather than the magnitude of it is important here, they, they are nearly constantly in that star's corona. They're inside that star's atmosphere very directly. So... That in a, itself is very, very interesting because that tells you the influence of the star is huge on these planetary atmospheres. Absolutely huge. And that's constant. That's all the time. But they kept hitting it. This paper, I, I made a distinct note here. Simpsons meme, stop hitting it, it's already dead. <laughs> they then decided to simulate what a coronal mass ejection would do to these planets and their atmospheres. And as I said before, a coronal mass ejection is a huge, uh, massive outpouring of plasma that is directed at high velocity in a particular direction and this is ejected from the stellar surface so the cmes they model are based on actual observational measurements of au mic from the 90s where a high energy event was recorded and deduced to be a cme as au mic is a is a bright star you can tell this because it has a specific name um so all of our named stars bright stars has been the subject of stellar monitoring for a really really long time but the recent observations with tess which has been looking for these planets has actually shown that it's a very very flare active star so there's constant yeah. bursts of activity on the stellar surface and, and flare events are related to magnetic events on the star so not only do we know that it's got a, a decent magnetic field these planets are sitting inside it but we know that that magnetic field changes so these planets are going to be undergoing a lot of a lot of changes because they'll be directly influenced by that but it's been measured to be about five to six flare events per day with larger more energetic events taking place once every maybe 10 to 15 days so in one rotation of the star so the star has a rotation period just over four days so the star itself is rotating in just under four days compare that to our sun which takes about 25 days to rotate so this is a very fast rotating star there's about 20 events or so of flare magnetic activity events on this star over the course of a single rotation. And the AUMIC-B orbits that star in two of its rotations. So it's undergoing about 40 events every year on AUMIC-B that the star is doing. Okay, if we don't think it's already dead yet, let me keep going. If we, if we kind of take this on, we have more events than the sun, but we're also more energetic much more energetic. The CME event on the sun is estimated to carry the mass. So one CME event carries the mass of about 1 billion tons of plasma from the sun. 
that sounds like a lot, but for the sun, it's kind of tiny. It's not yeah. very much. That's 10 to the 16, okay? AU Mixiumi, the event was approximated to contain 10 to the 20 grams of mass. So four orders of magnitude more massive compared to a solar CME event. And that actually corresponds to a five order or so magnitude increase in the energy of the event, the energy that would be deposited by that plasma impacting an atmosphere. So these events are much, much harsher than any environment we've had here on Earth. Um, and when we consider that the planets in AUMIC are on eight and 18 day orbits, we can already make the conclusion that this is not going to go well for these planetary atmospheres. Um, in every single one of the simulations, um, that is three configurations of the magnetic field and various permutations of the CME itself, the eruptions completely altered the conditions around the planet over 60 to 100% of its orbit around its star. So they truly were catastrophic events. And we're saying that around 20 flare events happen on the star. Now, not every flare event corresponds to a CME event, but it does make them more likely because flares disrupt that magnetic field. It's a release in tensions in the magnetic field. And if that carries plasma with it, material mass with it, then that would form a CME event. So there's higher potential on AUMIC than there is on the sun for these CME events to occur. The planets are much, much closer in, and these events are much, much stronger. So really not a very good environment uh, at all for the, these worlds um, to, to be there. But interestingly, this would result in a massive increase in the dynamical pressure around the planets, which could, the, the authors say, be measured in the radio. So when you see this star-planet coupling in a CME event, what would happen is it suppresses the radio signals because it's actually suppressing the, the electron cyclotron maser in um, just too many useless words there. Yeah. It's basically stopping the motion of particles which emit radio. Right. So if it's suppressing the motion of those particles which would normally be emitting radio waves, we'd see a dip in the radio signal from this planet when this thing happens. So if a CME hits the planet's atmosphere, we should see a dip in the radio, and that would show us that there is this coupling between the star and the planet's atmosphere. So we should be looking for this. Yeah. All in all, I think it is perfectly safe to say that these planets will not be the best places, um, but they might be some of the best places to examine this star-to-planet interaction. Um, as well as the best places to see the evolution of planets caused by this stellar stripping events. So perhaps eventually making these worlds transition from their current mini-Neptune state to a stripped super-Earth state, the AUMIC planets may represent some of the best ways to examine how stars and planets influence each other in this kind of way. Yeah. But really fascinating and really terrifying at the same time. Well, I think it's worth saying that, I mean, these planets are far too hot to be habitable anyway. We're, we're kind of, yes. we're saying that the atmospheres are the things being killed, not any oh, potential yeah. life, because there's no oh, hope completely. of life anyway. Oh, completely, yeah. But I think it is interesting, you know, you note the outer planet there is at 18 days. You know, Pro Proxima B is at 15 days. Yeah, so they actually do make a direct comparison to the Proxima system in yeah. this paper. Um, and, and they do look that similar conditions have been predicted for Proxima B for compared to these worlds. But there are habitable planets like that would have maybe had the same effects when they were 40 million years old and not four giga years old as we see for Proxima. So I mean that's the that's the worrying thing. Like, you know, all these all these little M dwarf systems might have to go through this for hundreds of millions of years and 
how does anything survive? Yeah. Yeah, and another thing that they, they do mention is that the order of magnitude in terms of the mass loss of the star itself, so they also calculate how much material from the star is lost in this, the stellar wind over time. And that's about five to ten times the amount that the sun would lose over the same time period. So they do lose a lot more of their mass in the solar wind than than the sun, because the sun is considered not an active star, whereas these are considered very active stars. So... I think that there is a lot of those connections across these M dwarfs, and it's certainly something that we need to understand more. Might be a, a relatively naive question, Hannah, but you said at the beginning they their first simulations they um they they offset the magnetic field axis from the rotational axis of the star. Is there any reason to think that that might be the case? Uh, why why would that not be aligned uh, in in future? Yeah, so um they actually do uh, three different situations, and this is because it's based on observations and and combined observations and simulations of AUMIC from, from around the late 90s or early 2000s, which showed in Zeeman Doppler imaging. This is like magnetic field reconstruction imaging. We do it of the sun um, with the Solar Dynamics Observatory and, and from the ground as well to see where the polarity changes. And this can tell you about the structure of the magnetic field. And from these, these ZDI maps, the Zeeman Doppler imaging maps, it showed that there was this non-axisymmetric field in there. So the average kind of strength of part of the field of AUMIC was not aligned. It's not the dominant term in the field strength. So if you look at the full field strength of the star, that you can get a global average field strength. And then they found that there's this slightly smaller offset field as well, in addition to that from observation. So what they did is they set up these three simulations. One where you've just got a nice simple dipole where it comes out of the north and south of the star's rotational axis. You've got a simple, very uh, kind of two-dimensional structure to their magnetic field. And then they set up one which was just considering this axisymmetric component at this lower output, so this lower intensity as well. Um, and then they considered a case where they combined the two things and actually they showed that no matter what, even if you've got a kind of a very low field and it's offset or a really high field and it's aligned, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like AUMIC B and C are both kind of screwed, as you say. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. I'm just, they're, they're in a very harsh environment. Yes, yeah. But harsh environments are interesting. So They'll do well in the Exo Cup perhaps now. Or better. I mean, it's done quite well in, in previous yeah. years. Because, again, this is something that Tess really kind of has has helped understand and discovered some some more in the system as well. There's just so much potential here, like I said, because of this system, because of how bright it is, because of how much information we've got over many, many decades of observing it. And how young it is. And because oh. of how, we, exactly, because of how young it is, there's a huge potential to use it to understand a whole whole load more of things. Right. Well, sounds like a very thorough and, and quite elegant paper. A lot of information. Yeah, and I missed out a lot of it there. It's very long. <laughs> I'll try and find a nature astronomy paper next time. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for contributing your papers, Hannah and Andrew. And, and thanks so much for listening, dear listener. Don't forget to look out for our other episode this month where we ask, how big can an exoplanet be? And feel free to give us any feedback on this episode or tell us what you want to hear about in the future through our Twitter account on exo underscore cast or on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous shows as well. Uh, you can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash exocast 
Every coffee is only four bucks and every donation over $15 will get you a shout on the show. Um, so a big thanks to all of our past donors on there as well. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, mugs, tote bags and more at exocast.threadless.com. And thanks to Fergus Hall for editing this episode and Exocast is available wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Dr. Hugh Osborne, a KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Dr. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck, University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your kind donations. Find out more on exocast.org. Exocast. I have exoplanets.